Hey everybody, welcome to another Gray Zone live stream with another exceptional guest. Uh, we have Dr. Gerald Horn, who's a historian, author, professor, academic, uh, Renaissance man, and author of many path-breaking books. Uh, the Counter-Revolution of 1776, uh, I think I got the title right, being one of the, the most uh, standout contributions of Dr. Horn. He's also the author of the counter-revolution of 1836, Texas slavery and Jim Crow and the roots of U.S. fascism, which I think is exceptionally relevant for our discussion today. Let me throw that up on screen before we get started so you, everyone can get a look. Um, very searing cover right there. And I think this book will help set the backdrop for what, I, what we're going to start our discussion with, um, we're going to talk about the wave of mass shootings in political and historical context. Um, the U.S. as a truly exceptional place uh, and not in necessarily a good way. We're also going to talk about the new revelations of how Haiti's debt to it, its um, initial imperial overlord France impacted its ability to develop or uh, forced it into a state of persistent de-development, underdevelopment. And we're going to talk about the NATO proxy war in Ukraine. So um, first, um, let's let's welcome uh, Dr. Horn to the gray zone. Welcome. Uh, I think this is your, your first live stream, but Aaron's interviewed you before at pushback. So great to, great to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Great. So I guess we all witnessed the hideous shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Um, you're in Houston, correct? That is correct, I'm afraid to say. So you're a, a real uh, firsthand expert on life in Texas. I mean, I think Uvalde is uh, closer to the San Antonio area, am I right? That's true. It's hundreds of miles from Houston. Yeah, so it's very different than Houston. Um, but there was also a shooting, an ideologically motivated shooting in Buffalo by a white supremacist, someone who left a manifesto who was inspired by the Christchurch shooting in, in New Zealand by a another neo-Nazi and Islamophobe, Brandon Tarrant, who actually had made contacts in Ukraine. So there are a lot of elements there. But the way that the Uvalde shooting is framed is sort of as this senseless act of violence and different political factions in the U.S. are pointing the finger at their political adversaries to blame them. Uh, but what are your, what were your, what was your initial reaction, Dr. Horn? And, and how do you see this shooting in the context of your book on Texas and the very violent history of this state? Well, first of all, uh, let me say like, like many others, not only in Texas, but nationally and perhaps globally, uh, it was shocking and horrific, but predictable, predictable because as we all know, there are more, weapons in this country than there are human beings. We also know that there is a political economy uh, of this kind of violence insofar as there is a major arms industry in this country. And as one recent author put it, there is a river of weapons flowing southward from the United States into Mexico, often going into the hands of drug cartels, and not only to Mexico, but throughout the hemisphere, particularly into Haiti. We also are aware of the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, 
which has received many interpretations over the decades, but the latest interpretation put forward by the right wing has been to allow for the further proliferation of weapons and the U.S. Supreme Court has a decision on tap within a few days, perhaps a few weeks, that will probably uh, unleash further uh, weapons into the hands of the right wing. Now, with regard to the Second Amendment, th this raises a very important question of history. History not only relevant to the United States, but relevant to Texas. You cannot begin to understand the Second Amendment without understanding settler colonialism, a descriptor that sadly and unfortunately is largely absent from the vocabularies of many of our friends on the left, that is, is evident, describes a system whereby hundreds of years ago, European invaders uh, came to North America and by dint of weapons were able to seize the land from the Native Americans and as well were able to keep the enslaved Africans in line that they had shackled and manacled on the west coast of Africa in particular and drag kicking and screaming across the Atlantic to engage in free labor. In other words, the Second Amendment was designed to effectuate settler colonialism, which reaches a kind of efflorescence with the proclamation of the United States in the late 18th century and its vaunted Bill of Rights and its vaunted Constitution. And keep in mind that the Second Amendment did not apply to the enslaved population, nor did it apply to the indigenous population. Uh, those in your audience who are familiar with the cinematic genre known as Westerns know that a stock villain in many Westerns was a settler who sold weapons to indigenous populations. And going forward, I'm afraid to say that that particular construct is still in evidence. Recall what happened in 1967 when the Black Panther Party uh, invaded, to use the term the press used, the Capitol in Sacramento with arms in hand, even right-wingers, even some leaders of the National Rifle Association did a 180-degree reversal and came out in favor of gun control, illustrating the point that uh, the Second Amendment was not necessarily designed for all of us. Or look at the killing of Philando Castile in Minnesota a few years ago. Supposedly, he was reaching for a weapon. This is a young Black man. The image is captured on video, I'm afraid to say, the National Rifle Association did not rally to the defense of this man who had a Second Amendment right but was slain by a police officer in a bruising confrontation. Likewise, I think we would be remiss if we failed to connect the domestic to the global. Uh, that is to say that we're all familiar with the ravenous U.S. foreign policy that is engaged in murderous escapades in Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq, and sites too numerous to mention. And the fact is that that illustrates the point that political disputes should be settled through the barrel of a gun. It also leads to a certain kind of cheapening of life that is returned with velocity to these shores, not to mention the fact that inevitably, I think it's coarsened the psyche of too many in this country, uh, leading predictably to what happened in Uvalde and in Buffalo. Uh, speaking of the latter, of course, we should mention the so-called white replacement theory that drove this terrorist uh, in Western New York 
the idea that somehow there is a conspiracy to replace the Euro-American population with people of color. Supposedly, there is a Jewish cabal that is pulling the strings for all of this. It helped to drive the murderous uh, adventure in New Zealand a few years ago. We know about its roots in France. But it's also, as you know, been picked up uh, by Fox News, by Tucker Carlson, uh, by uh, Congresswoman Stefanik, uh, who may be Mr. Trump's running mate in 2024. And so it's become, quote, respectable, unquote, which does not bode well, I'm afraid to say, for the future of this country, not to mention the health of black people in particular, and certainly underlines the last few words of the title of my latest book you so kindly mentioned, The Roots of U.S. Fascism. Aaron, you want to jump well, in Let me here? ask you, can you, for people who, uh, who are not familiar with that history, can you give us a sketch of the, you know, Texas's role in the history of U.S. fascism and how that that legacy is still playing out today? Well, uh, one of the points that I make in this book is that Texas is to the United States as the United States is to the world. Just as the United States helps to dr drive this small planet to the right with its misadventures in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and now in Central and Eastern Europe, Texas helps to drive the United States to the right. Uh, Texas, as you know, has the largest population uh, in the uh, in Dixie, uh, second largest to California with a population approaching uh, 30 million to California's uh, 40 million. Therefore, it sends a disproportionate number of members to the US House of Representatives, uh, most of whom, except for those who are of African descent and a few who are Mexican American or origin, uh, lean sharply uh, to the right. But what you need to know about Texas historically is that it seceded from Mexico in 1836 because Mexico had moved to abolish slavery a few years earlier under a president of African descent, uh, speaking of Vicente Guerrero. And rather than accede to abolition, Sam Houston, Stephen F. Austin, and the other so-called founding fathers who uh, rather egotistically and ostentatiously gave their names to leading cities such as Houston and Austin, uh, seceded, uh, fought a war, and were able to prevail. It's not only that, but what I'm about to tell some who may not be familiar is that there are many militant and fearsome indigenous groupings historically in North America. But I think it's probably fair to say that those in Texas were probably the most militant and fearsome of all, uh, speaking of the Comanches in the first place, uh, and then, of, of course, speaking of other uh, indigenous groupings such as the uh, uh, Mescalero Apaches uh, due west, the Lipan Apaches uh, due west. And because they put up such a sterling resistance, uh, that helped to lead to a bloody liquidation. It helped to lead to the proliferation of weapons in Texas, the latest manifestation you have just seen in Ovalde, uh, just due west of where I'm sitting in Houston. And I should also say that Texas, for reasons I can probably go into subsequently, has the largest black population in the United States of America. The black population of Texas also were pioneers in terms of slave revolts slave rebellions. Uh, 
that also tends to generate a certain amount of bloodshed. And that is baked into the culture of Texas. And then Texas also, because it was an independent country from 1835 to 18, 1836 to 1845, which means that when it entered the Union, it kept tighter control on its so-called public land. I say so-called because the land actually belonged to the indigenous population. And this allowed Sam Houston, Stephen F. Austin et al. to dangle before uh, cutthroats and no goodniks from Dixie due east. That is to say, you come to Texas and you can get a big stake of land and that helps to uh, attract to Texas a countless number of cutthroats. In fact, it helps to attract to Texas not only cutthroats from Dixie, but cutthroats from the pan-European world. Um, Luterans, some of you may be familiar with the city in Southwest Africa, Luterans, uh, which is named after a German migrant uh, in that land, Namibia, which was subjected to a genocide at the beginning of the 20th century. Luterans was also a settler in Texas, uh, helping to liquidate Native Americans. So this helps to create the, this culture of genocide, uh, that was inflicted upon Native Americans in the first instance and bloodshed inflicted upon the rebelling African population. And one more point, because Texas as an independent country was oftentimes in conflict with the United States of America headquartered in Washington, you would think that they were close comrades, but actually there was competition between them. And so what happens is that the United States of America decides to put on Texas' northern border, so-called Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma, and then with the Trail of Tears, forces Cherokees, Choctaws, Creeks, et cetera, to march across North America to Indian Territory, what is today's Oklahoma. Needless to say, they were not very happy uh, once they arrived in their new homeland, and that helps to stoke conflict between Texas and the indigenous uh, on the northern border of Texas, which was quite uh, satisfying <laughs> to Washington, which went to keep this competitor in check. So all of these factors helps to create this very unique culture of violence and helps to explain, I'm afraid to say, if the United States turns in an even more dangerous right-wing direction, you'll probably find uh, Ted Cruz, who has a remarkable resemblance to Senator Joseph McCarthy, by the way, uh, Governor Greg Abbott, and uh, John Cornyn, the other senator from Texas, you'll probably find them in the vanguard. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure you covered this in your book, Dr. Horn, one of the central myths of American exceptionalism, which I got to tour while passing through San Antonio. I visited the Alamo. It's treated as a almost sacred holy site and photographs are not allowed. There are these little men running around screaming at you if you pull out a camera. I don't know what photographing it will do, if it'll um, vandalize it somehow, but that's how holy it's, that, that's the holiness with which, with which it's treated. And the story of the Alamo, you know, this fight to the death of just a few men against this massive Mexican Goliath, this David and Goliath story, uh, is a tall tale that conceals what seems to be a cowardly fight to bring slavery to Texas and a coward and, and a, ultimately a, a weak surrender. Um, maybe I don't know if you you want to address the Alamo myth at all, or if you addressed it in your book. 
Well, interestingly enough, just this morning in the Houston Chronicle, the local newspaper, one of their leading columnists, Chris Tomlinson, who just co-authored a book on the Alamo, which punctured many of the myths, some of which you just made reference to, uh, brought out the chilling news that uh, in going around talking about his book, that uh, he was threatened with violence. In fact, the coda of his rather chilling article is that he's now bought a weapon because he's afraid of being killed. Now, I'm hoping that since uh, I don't have a major commercial publisher, that uh, my book does not receive, nor its author, uh, a similar uh, rude uh, greeting uh, by those who hold these mythologies dear. Uh, but uh, given the fact that this is the United States, uh, somebody will probably uh, short my life at this point, maybe take out an insurance policy guaranteeing that I won't or survive the week in order that they can make a handsome profit. But this also ties us into many of these uh, settler myths that are so redolent in the United States of America. Uh, the myths not only afflict a, a clear understanding of the state of Texas, it also afflicts a clear understanding of the United States of America itself. Now, fortunately, what's been happening of late in the sense of historiography is that you've had a number of scholars and writers, including myself, but also including the late uh, Berkeley scholar, uh, Tyler Stovall in his book, White Freedom, the late uh, philosopher, also of African origin, speaking of uh, Charles Mills in his book, The Racial Contract, the Native American specialist, speaking of Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz in her book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States of America, uh, the Haitian filmmaker, uh, Raul Peck, in his documentary, which I uh, highly recommend, Exterminate All the Brutes, which is a sweeping castigation con condemnation of the notion of settler colonialism uh, through the lens, interestingly enough, of Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz's book on indigenous peoples. And there are differences between and amongst these various approaches, but all of them are trying to puncture the creation myth of the United States of America. And needless to say, uh, this historiographical intervention has not been greeted with equanimity by establishment historians, mainstream historians, or even uh, 45th U.S. President Donald J. Trump, who established his 1776 commission because he thought Howard University's Nicole Hannah-Jones in her 1619 project was receiving too much attention. Of course, there's been legislation to bar it uh, from various uh, educational uh, jurisdictions. And uh, there's a certain kind of hysteria right now uh, that is gripping the United States of America. I, I think there are many causes for it. Um, one cause might be what we'll talk about at the end, which is the uh, changing role of the United States in the world, uh, which was represented by Mr. Biden's recent trip to Northeast Asia, where he's trying to round up a posse to corral the People's Republic of China. And I think that as former State Department planning chief Karan Skinner put it, she was chief under uh, Michael Pompeo, Mr. Trump's uh, Secretary of State, uh, she suggested that this hysteria about China is connected to hysteria about the rise of Asia, which then ties in, I'm afraid to say, to the proliferation of hate crimes inflicted upon Asian Americans in particular. 
So there's a kind of, of racial hysteria that's erupting. Uh, we made reference to replacement theory, so-called, which reflects the same kind of hysteria. And we really need more interventions alongst the lines of the scholars and filmmakers that I've just mentioned so that more accuracy and truth can be delivered to an audience. And I would really urge and recommend that the scholars who are unsettled by this historiographical intervention to just cool their jets, calm down, everything will be okay, but it won't be okay if you keep joining in these right-wing uh, lynch mobs that are seeking to squash the truth. You mentioned Nicole Hannah-Jones. I wasn't planning on asking this, but I, I mean, it's the first time I've interviewed you and it's too tantalizing not to do. Um, why didn't she, why doesn't she credit you more prominently uh, with her 1619 project? Because it does seem to draw strongly on the underlying thesis of your book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, that the United States was founded on, uh, founded by a plantation class that sought to preserve slavery. Um, I haven't heard her credit you. And also um, her politics do seem to be fairly different than yours. She doesn't really connect uh, the history of slavery to the continuation of US empire. For example, she congratulated Lloyd Austin on becoming the first uh, black secretary of defense. I thought that was kind of unusual given the searing history that she uncovers. Well, uh, I, I must say, I have a fair amount of sympathy for Nicole Hannah-Jones, given the kind of denunciations that she has been subjected to. Uh, Including by the World Socialist website, I also have to say, it's not just right-wingers who are going after her. Oh, my goodness. It, it's really been terrible. I mean, it, it's been awful. And you know, given a person who's still trying to practice popular front politics, uh, I've tried to engage in acts of solidarity uh, with Nicole Hannah-Jones. I, I, I don't begrudge any sort of drawing up on my research. Um, it's in the public domain. And in any case, she's in enough trouble already without uh, giving a scholar with my sort of left-wing and radical credentials uh, any sort of salute because uh, that could bring even more condemnation raining down on her, her head. So um, I, I think that it's, it's like the New York Times Haitian project, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about shortly, which is that um, when you have that platform of the New York Times, which is a constituent member of the US ruling elite, uh, obviously there are certain constraints. <laughs> And uh, it, it reminds me of, of the uh, Hollywood screenwriter. I wrote a biography of Howard Lawson, a founder of the, what is now the Screenwriters Guild, or, the, or the, the Writers Guild, who suggested that there is a political economy of writing and you have more flexibility when you're writing a poem. You have less flexibility when you're uh, writing a screenplay, which has uh, capital investment, uh, for example. And so likewise, if you're writing on the platform of the New York Times, uh, there are all sorts of constraints uh, from various uh, sectors of the U.S. ruling elite. And I try to take them to account. And uh, I have to say that uh, I think that the 1619 Project, uh, at the end of the day, made a signal contribution uh, to the understanding of the United States of America. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why it's coming to such severe assault. And that's one of the reasons why I've tried to stand in solidarity with that project. Okay, Aaron, I got one more question. I don't know if you want to jump in uh, before we move on to Haiti. Well, on Uvalde, just what do you make of what we've learned about the police response, the admissions from top police officials that they made the wrong decision to basically just stand by as the killer was uh, in the classroom uh, opening fire and that they basically did not go in because they were scared for their own safety, not thinking about saving the lives of these children. What do you make of that and, and what it says about the culture of police that we have in this country and the myths that exist around policing? Well, first of all, with regard to the myths, uh, the slogan, as you know, from the right wing and their NRA acolytes is that what we need is a good guy with a gun to stop a bad guy with a gun. Uh, what we need is the hardening of schools with off-duty police officers patrolling the hallways. Now, you had a bevy of officers from various law enforcement jurisdictions because this is near the border. So you even have uh, border agents with guns posted outside that school. And yet uh, that uh, massacre was allowed to happen uh, that is to say that they were standing there just as 911 calls were flooding into operators from children huddling and barricaded in this classroom with uh, Salvador Ramos, the terrorist. So what that tells us is that this slogan, like many slogans of the right wing, does not hold water <laughs> because many of these so-called good guys with guns do not necessarily want to risk their lives when confronted with a so-called bad guy with a gun. Having said that, uh, let me uh, extend particular accolades to uh, Beto O'Rourke, who, as you know, is running for governor against uh, Governor Abbott. Uh, he had the temerity to confront Governor Abbott at the press conference immediately uh, following uh, the massacre. He got in his face. Uh, he was denounced as a result. And I think that that's the sort of confrontational tactics that we need to employ and deploy further with regard to these right wingers. We need to be in their faces. Uh, we need to be running against them, against all odds, uh, such as the odds that do not necessarily favor Mr. O'Rourke in Texas. Well, I, I grew up in an over-policed area in Washington, D.C., and I live in one now. And the police response in Uvalde didn't surprise me at all. I think it wouldn't surprise anyone who knows what, what cops are really like up close in an urban scenario where they are just trained, first of all, to follow the orders of the command, to not think independently, and to bully ordinary citizens Um they're, and, and when, when it comes to a gunfight, they try to avoid that at any cost. Uh, the ultimate, ultimate goal is to get home at the end of the day, no matter what. So I, I, I guess I, I got to say I wasn't shocked at all. They just waited for the tactical team to come in, even though they had rifles. Uh, and you just saw them abuse the parents and pepper spray them. Um, but I wanted to ask about the, the gun aspect. It's, it's obvious Dr. Horn, you're not from the part of the left that believes they should get armed with uh, high-powered assault weapons to 
uh, prepare for the the fascist onslaught or to prepare to defend themselves against the government. I know that's become kind of fashionable in some sectors of the left. I'm not from that either. And I think, you know, if the, the second amendment was written uh, when people were granted the right to bear muskets, not AR-15s. There are currently a, about 10 million AR-15s owned in the United States right now among 300 million handguns and other assorted weapons. I don't think there's ever been such an armed society in the history of humanity, uh, not one with such a gun culture. And there was just a major NRA convention in your city, Houston, which was protested. It was a site of heavy protest and confrontation. A lot of people pulled out. Lee Greenwood pulled out. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask you a question about the NRA and its origins. The NRA, my understanding of it is it's, it grew out of the gun clubs that were formed during uh, Reconstruction when the Southern agrarian class, the white planter class became terrified of the freed descendants of slaves or, or freed black slaves. And uh, also kind of connects to the history of the formation of the first Ku Klux Klan. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? And correct me if I got any of that wrong. Well, the National Rifle Association is going through many iterations. Uh, its present toxic iteration has not necessarily been the consistent ethos of the NRA. At one time, their ethos tended towards what you might consider anodyne activities, such as sharpshooting, for example. Uh, for, for example, not necessarily sharpshooting so you can use your AR-15 to take down a 10-year-old, but sharpshooting short in terms of a sport. Because as you know, even at the Olympics, uh, there are various kinds of uh, so-called sports involving uh, rifling, rifles. But now with the ascension of Wayne LaPierre, who just received another tour of duty as leader of NRA, and under his supervision, the NRA has been a reliable source of campaign funds, not least to uh, one Donald J. Trump. It's become a bulwark uh, of the uh, ultra-right wing. And I think that there is a way, a manner in which we can connect some of the various theses we've been putting forward. What I mean is your audience should take note of what's happened in Ottawa with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, moving aggressively to push legislation in Parliament to further delimit the circulation of weapons uh, in Canada, for example. Now, after similar sorts of terrorist activities in both New Zealand and Australia, uh, not to mention Scotland, you've had a similar uh, serious efforts to delimit weaponry. Now, what U.S. patriots, particularly those of the left, I have to say somewhat sarcastically, I've referred to them in previous writings as left-wing white nationalists, but what they need to think about is if the United States had such a grand revolution that was a great leap forward for humanity, and Canada, which is a kind of control group across the border, did not, yet Canada has the single-payer healthcare system with regard to healthcare that we can only dream about, 
Canada moves aggressively to delimit the handguns, trying to draw lessons from Uvalde and Buffalo. Australia, uh, another former appendage of the British Empire, has not had a so-called uh, grand revolution uh, a la Canada. It too moves aggressively. And then back in the home base, which is Scotland, uh, you too had uh, aggressive moves against weaponry. Shouldn't that cause a serious reflection on the part of many about the nature of this so-called republic? Uh, shouldn't that remove the cobwebs from our thinking caps and allowing us to uh, ponder more deeply uh, how this nation evolved? Uh, shouldn't it cause us to think more deeply about the Second Amendment and its complement, settler colonialism? And shouldn't it cause us to think more deeply about the horrors that may befall all of us unless these horrific trends are stopped in their tracks up to and including, I'm afraid to say, the onset of a unique form of U.S. neo-fascism. Absolutely. Well, we're going to move on to another segment. Um, Aaron, I don't know if you want to introduce the Haiti segment right now. Or I can do, do it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do it. Um, so we are here with Dr. Gerald Horn and... We're going to be discussing now an area of study that he has written about, uh, and that is Haiti. He is the author of the book Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic. And recently, there was an extensive series in the New York Times on the history of Haiti, and particularly the colonial pillage of Haiti. And Haiti is the first free hemisphere. Haiti's the first uh, free country in this hemisphere. It was founded in 1804 after a revolt by black slaves. And as Dr. Horn has documented, the colonial powers, uh, France, uh, and then the, with U.S. help, basically tried to make Haiti pay a massive price for its freedom. And part of that was, among many coercive colonial measures, was forcing Haiti to pay what is now billions of dollars in reparations for the economic losses that France endured as a result of losing Haiti to uh, its citizens uh, in the slave revolt. And so the Times came up with a figure of something like $115 billion was pillaged from Haiti by France just in reparations alone on top of other forms of theft. And so if uh, that, that, that amount was applied today, it would be $115 billion that Haiti repaid to France or Haiti paid to France as essentially ransom for being free after 1804. And the Times goes through other acts of colonial pillage, including the US occupation of Haiti for many years in the 20th century. Now, the way this series was received was controversial because some historians felt as if they weren't being given sufficient credit because it's true that a lot of this was known before, but it was significant to see this acknowledged in the Times and the Times did get some original documents. And the Times also got some interesting disclosures about more recent history where a former French ambassador to Haiti admitted what has been obvious for many years now, which is that the U.S. in 2004, along with France and Canada and other Western powers, backed a coup that overthrew for the second time Jean-Bertrand Aristide, Haiti's first elected, a freely elected president. And one of the grievances that France had against Aristide 
is that he was demanding that France pay back the billions of dollars that France stole from Haiti uh, as a ransom for its freedom. And a, a French ambassador to Haiti at the time admitted that the coup of Aristide was essentially orchestrated by the U.S. And this is something that has long been known. Um, both Max and I have been reporting on this and talking about this from the start. But here from the horse's mouth is somebody admitting it. So, Dr. Horn, that's a lot there to set this up. But I'm, I'm curious, as someone who has studied Haiti, uh, extensively written books on it, what was your impression of this New York Times series? Well, I share your general sentiment. Uh, certainly any school child on the island knows about the ransom, the debt, Haiti being forced post-1804, post-independence to pay reparations and how that helped to cripple the Haitian economy and cripple the uh, life chances of Haitians to numerous dimension. At the same time, I was pleased that uh, this major megaphone, speaking of the New York Times, was able to broadcast this message to a North American audience because despite the industrious labors of numerous scholars, uh, sadly and unfortunately, many of their works have not broken through to a mass audience the way that a multi-part series in the, in the New York Times can. At the same time, I was happy to see that the New York Times uh, translated the article in the Haitian Creole, widely spoken uh, on the island, which means that uh, many Haitians can read in their own tongue uh, what France perpetrated upon uh, their ancestors. At the same time, of course, if the New York Times had had more space, perhaps uh, more diligence, uh, perhaps more sound politics, uh, they would have pointed the finger at the United States of America as well, because France was not alone in seeking to repress the Haitian Revolution. The United States may have exceeded France, in fact. Why do I say that? Well, number one, the United States was the major slave trading nation uh, on planet Earth as early as the 1790s. The United States had taken over the odious commerce to the island of Cuba, one of Haiti's closest neighbors. That causes Haiti to spend more on developing a navy to arrest that kind of inhuman trafficking, inhumane trafficking. Also, many of the slave-owning class in the United States of America were wondering why would they have to go thousands of miles to Africa to manacle and shackle Africans when 700 miles from the tip of Florida, you have a number of free quote unquote Africans, uh, right for the plucking, <laughs> who could be snatched and brought to uh, sugar plantations in Texas or, or in Louisiana. So therefore Haiti had to spend more on its um, police and military so that they would not fall victim to a verb that I hope and I trust has disappeared from the English language, which is being re-enslaved. That was a major verb, a major part of the vocabulary of many in this hemisphere. And then it's not only Cuba. Uh, by the 1840s, the United States was in control or the leading force with regard to bringing Africans to the uh, deepest and most pervasive market of enslaved of all, speaking of Brazil. 
And it was joined by Texas, 1836 to 1845, when they were in a sort of race to see who could deliver the most enslaved to Brazil and to Cuba. And then if you look at the island of Hispaniola, an island now shared by Haiti and the Dominican Republic, I'm sure many have wondered why on such a small, small island you have two countries, Haiti and the Dominican Republic. This has a lot to do with one of the most successful and one of the earliest covert action covert actions of pre-CIA, pre-1947, and I'm speaking of 1844, when the enslaving class, then in control in Washington, was able to induce a secession of the Dominican Republic uh, from Haiti. That leads to decades of internecine conflict between the two nations. It weakens both nations. Both are occupied by the United States in the 20th century. And then, you know, in the late 1930s, the Dominican dictator, Rafael Trujillo, actually massacres hundreds, if not thousands uh, of Haitians, uh, because, of course, in the Dominican Republic, uh, it has a very unique history as being one of the few countries that traces its independence in terms of a secession from a black country. And so there's a lot of uh, Afrophobia, if you like, Negrophobia, as it used to be called in the Dominican Republic, which has fueled uh, this conflict. Uh, baseball fans <laughs> might recall the Dominican slugger Sammy Sosa, uh, who hit all those home runs for the Texas Rangers and the Chicago he's, teams. He's not looking well these days, I got to say. <laughs> well, what <laughs> happened, of course, is that he has been afflicted with something that has afflicted many of his compatriots, which is that he tried to drain the melanin from his skin so he could be appear lighter. And that is an emblem uh, for, I'm afraid to say, for a certain sector of the Dominican Republic. And with regard to the series, I was happy to see that the New York Times uh, interviewed a number of French socialists. Francois Hollande, the former president, refused to comment. Interestingly enough, this helps to shed light on why they've been doing so poorly at the polls, because they were directly implicated. Uh, oh, my goodness. Look at that picture. Uh, in, in the coup. Yeah, that's Sammy Sosa. Uh not a character from Willy Wonka. It's pretty sad. I uh, just thought yeah. it would illustrate your point. Uh, yeah, anyway. You should see a before picture as well so people could see what he... I mean, he puts Michael Jackson to shame, for example. Yeah. But, but in any case, uh, the New York Times also interviews Regis Debray. Now, those with hair as gray as mine might re recall Regis Debray from back in the day when he was boasting of hanging out with Che Guevara. Uh, yeah, he also course. changed, but ideologically. <laughs> right, exactly. He, he's sort of the, the Sammy Sosa of the French left. And <laughs> he, too, has been implicated in these dastardly activities uh, against uh, independent Haiti uh, in the 20, late 20th century, early 21st century. So, uh, as I said, the, the bottom line is, is that uh, there was a certain contribution that this multi-part series made. But on the other hand, uh, with just a tad more diligence, I think the, United, the New York Times could have gone even further and could have really created a bombshell with regard to what it was seeking to accomplish. Well, I, I, 
I threw on screen a piece that I published actually at salon.com. It was one of the first investigations I published. It was called The Other Regime Change, and it was an investigation I spent six months on about the role of the U.S. and specifically the National Endowment for Democracy, the regime change arm of the U.S. government, and an, its subsidiary, the International Republican Institute, in fomenting the coup against Haiti's first democratically elected President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And the New York Times promptly ripped off my piece oh, without citing me. They actually uh, contacted me for help. They had all these like editorial assistants asking me for help, getting sources and photos and everything. I'm like, why don't you just credit me or let me write something? Anyway, they ripped it off. It was a front page story. I protested to their ombudsman. They no longer have an ombudsman. Um, but at least they reported on the International Republican Institute carrying out this coup. Everything that followed in the New York Times seemed to strip uh, the away the U.S. role in destabilizing Haiti and then installing all of these puppets uh, uh, that were Clinton favorites and, you know, uh, little little Mickey, Martelly and these characters. Um, you know, it, it's been a, a, a pathetic run for the New York Times. So it was refreshing to see in this article some acknowledgement of Aristide's removal. Um, I thought maybe you could, I, I, I mean... I assume you read the piece and can assess whether the New York Times was right about Aristide being removed. But their point was that, oh, well, it was because he started a public, a major public relations campaign demanding France repay its debt. But I think there were much deeper causes behind the coup. And I wanted you to address that, the removal of Aristide and how that impacted Haiti uh, going forward. Yeah, I, I just say this was the second time the U.S. backed a coup against him. And the first time yeah, yeah. he wasn't raising right. the reparations issue. So the idea that it was just about reparations is obviously false because this was the second time in just over a decade that the U.S. overthrew Aristide after him becoming the first democratically elected president. The first time that his replacements were School of the Americas trainees. So the U.S. role was obvious. Hmm. Well, uh, uh, let me engage in a bit of self-criticism because what was happening during the time that Aristide was under assault uh, and during both of his uh, administrations was that uh, I was being heavily influenced by Haitians who were critical of, of his regime and felt that uh, he was undermining his party, Lavalas, that he was engaged in inconvenient uh, relationships or marriages of convenience, I should say, with uh, unseemly characters. And I let that influence me and I, I didn't speak out as, as vigorously as I could have and as I should have. And, and for that, uh, I'm truly ap apologetic because what happened with both of these coups, irrespective of what misdeeds Aristide may or may not have committed, was that it set back Haiti's development. Uh, it led directly uh, to the assassination of President Mo Moise approximately a year ago, uh, where if you follow the news, you'll find many threads leading back to the United States of America. It helped to destabilize the economy, uh, leading to a flood of out-migration uh, of Haitians, and I'm sure you're familiar 
with the hateful pictures from the Texas-Mexico border of a few months ago of Haitians being treated like enslaved Africans in the 19th century as they're being whipped and manhandled and roughhoused by border agents. And of course, uh, if I may be allowed to segue, it also rips the mask off of the white supremacist nature of US foreign policy, because at the same time, you've had this spearing, this uh, persecution of Haitian migrants. Uh, you have the Unite with Ukraine campaign launched by the 46th US president. You've had talk about letting 100,000 Ukrainians into the United States of America. You have Brett Stevens, the columnist for the New York Times, suggests that uh, every Ukrainian who arrives should immediately be given a green card, uh, which would allow social welfare benefits amongst other perks. Uh, no such uh, perks uh, being offered to the Haitians. And I should also say that sadly and tragically enough, this has been duplicated by the so-called allies in uh, Western Europe who also have rolled out the red carpet uh, for Ukrainians. We, we've all seen the stories about Poland, a major ally of the United States of America, and how they've mistreated uh, medical students from Nigeria who had been studying in Ukraine, um, students from other parts of Africa who had been studying Ukraine. That helps to explain why African nations in particular have been so lukewarm, shall we say, about joining the sanctions crusade against uh, Russia, which has led to Congressman Gregory Meeks of the Congressional Black Caucus, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, in a maneuver that I think may jeopardize his reelection chances. He, of course, represents Southeast Queens to carry legislation calling for a certain kind of penalty to African nations who do not go along with U.S. policy towards Russia. I can tell you that this has caused outrage amongst many uh, Black New Yorkers. It's a slap in the face of African sovereignty. And to connect this further, uh, on the positive side, uh, we fully expect in the next few days and weeks for Haiti to join the African Union, the first nation outside of the bounds of the continent to join this equivalent or peer, if you like, to the European Union. And this opens many avenues with regard to the Black American population. It opens the possibility of Haiti being the connective tissue that ties the people in the diaspora here in North America and the Caribbean with the growing power of the African Union. And hopefully that will also send a signal to Congressman Meeks of Southeast Queens and the Congressional Black Caucus. Well, we're, we're coming up on 50 minutes now. I know we budgeted for an hour and um, wanted to maybe transition a little into the NATO proxy war in Ukraine. Uh, Dr. Horn, why do you think that the U.S. has been so willing to sacrifice the economies of Western Europe to escalate against Russia? And what will the impact be economically and politically also on the global south? There's a new U.N. report on the ricochet effect 
of sanctioning Russia, of you know the EU cutting off oil, of the lack of fertilizer coming out of Russia and Ukraine, and how it specifically will harm Russia. I'm sorry, will specifically harm nations in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America as well. And I think we've even seen some uh, bread riots in Iraq over the lack of grain. So what are your thoughts on the global economic impact of this war? And why is the U.S. so gung-ho about it when it knows that it's dooming its transatlantic allies? <laughs> well, as you know, the saying has been the United States is willing to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian, and apparently they're willing to sacrifice so-called allies in the European Union. Uh, let me also say that a few days after February 24th, 2022, when this conflict erupted, I published a piece on the website, a Black Agenda Report, that I continue to stand by. And the point that I made in that particular article is that uh, this conflict with Russia is only stage one. Stage two was unveiled, as noted a few moments ago, when Mr. Biden pitched up in Seoul, South Korea, and Tokyo, Japan. That is to say, going after the big enchilada, which is the People's Republic of China. Uh, that is to say that this is a two-stage conflict. And if and when you interview many of our friends, quote unquote, on what I call the pro-war war left, you should force them out of their tunnel vision which just looks at this conflict from Washington to Ukraine to Russia and force them to talk about China, force them to talk about India, force them to talk about the global South because they don't want to go there, quite frankly, because uh, they know that uh, they have no solid answers. I was taken by the front page of the Wall Street Journal this morning, which reports uh, that uh, there is growing consternation in Paris and Berlin about this ongoing conflict. <laughs> Apparently, uh, they're sufficiently wise to recognize what's going on, that in part what's going on is an illustration of what uh, former national security advisor under Trump, John Bolton, said in his memoir. He said that the 45th U.S. president saw the European Union as second only to China as an antagonist of the United States of America. <laughs> so you see that this is like a bank shot and pool, where the United States, at, on the one hand, is uh, preparing for a mano-a-mano -mano confrontation with China uh, through the back door with Russia, and at the same time, <laughs> weakening the European Union, uh, whose budgets will be strained as they spend more on the military, as they are forced to house more Ukrainian refugees, not to mention uh, dealing with record inflation because as the United States drive or seeks to drive Venezuelan oil from the market, Iranian oil from the market, and now seeks to drive Russian oil from the market, the sound in the background that you hear as I sit here in Houston, Texas, are corks on champagne bottles popping as oil men in the Texas uh, Petro Metro, speaking of Houston, are celebrating, they're dancing in the streets. I should turn my camera around so you can see them literally dancing in the streets uh, in Houston, Texas. Not to mention uh, if Russian- uh, are, they, are, they shooting, are they shooting AR-15s in the air while they dance? What, let me be silent. You probably hear it. Do you hear, hear the gunshots? They're, they're, they're <laughs> I, I don't know, I, it might be in my neighborhood. I'm not sure. Oh, I see. 
Not to mention, of course, replacing Russian natural gas with natural gas from the Texas-Louisiana border, which then brings us to Chancellor Schultz of Berlin, sometimes referred to as Sergeant Schultz, uh, you may get the TV reference, who just toured Africa, where he's trying to twist arms of uh, Senegal to uh, speed up its development of natural gas so that it can replace Russian natural gas. And that brings us to the global south, because I think the impact of this conflict will have negative and positive consequences, potentially positive consequences. Negatively, you've already made reference to the agricultural situation, food riots. Uh, you've, uh, but on the positive side, to the extent that Russia is boycotted, then there will have to be a substitute for Russian energy. And that's why Mr. Schultz was in Senegal. That's why he went to Niger for uranium. Of course, France is heavily dependent upon nuclear plants for its electricity. That's why he went to South Africa, because, of course, if you're not going to employ Russian gold, you have to turn to South African gold. If you're not going to employ uh, Russian titanium necessary for jets, airplanes, and by the way, China just rolled out a few days ago, its competitor to both Airbus and Boeing, if you're not going to rely upon Russian palladium necessary for the catalytic converters that are being stolen off cars at a record pace because it's necessary for the green economy, you have to rely upon uh, South African palladium. But at the same time, that brings us back to Congressman uh, Meeks, who is trying to now uh, get these African nations in line before they're able to do what Algeria is doing, because Algeria uh, routinely supplies a good deal of the natural gas to both Spain and Italy. Algeria has been playing one off against another, a turnabout from colonial times when the European powers played one African nation or one African ethnic group off against another. And that is not going down very well, I'm afraid to say, uh, in Washington, uh, which is one of the reasons uh, why you see uh, this latest uh, episode, dangerous episode, with Mr. Biden's op-ed in the New York Times today, uh, trying to rationalize sending more weaponry uh, to Ukraine, weaponry that he's been promised Zelensky will not use to attack Russia. I don't think that promise is worth the paper it's likely not written on. And this bids fair to escalate the conflict in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, bringing planet Earth closer to nuclear conflagration. However, given the reality that the United States of America is finding it difficult to compete economically with the People's Republic of China, which by the way, as we know, the United States helped to build up, uh, we were marking the 50th anniversary of the Entente between Washington and Beijing uh, in 1972 when February 24th uh, came around. And of course, uh, China got a sweet deal, got massive foreign direct investment from the United States of America and has created this juggernaut. And the United States now wants to unscramble the egg. They don't like the deal that they created. And so all of us presumably will have to pay a stiff and heavy price as the United States heads towards an iceberg on this ship of fools with this incompetent admiral known as John Joseph R. Biden at the wheel. Yeah, I don't know. As a uh, historian, I I'm curious how you rank this moment in comparison to others in history in terms of its dangers. 
I'm thinking of, of two aspects, and you've touched on them. One is the amount of jingoism that's going on right now inside the U.S. The space for dissent is very, very narrow. In the New York Times, surprisingly, there's been more dissenting voices allowed recently on the op-ed pages. And last week, the New York Times editorial board came out with a uh, – I, I was very surprised by uh, a column saying that basically the U.S. should tell Ukraine that there are limits on how much support it's willing to offer Ukraine in its war against Russia. That's the first time I've seen the New York Times editorial board not reflexively fully on board with U.S. militarism that I can recall. So that is some sign. But otherwise, there's been just complete suppression of debate. Anyone who dissents is, of course, deemed to be a Russian puppet and all the standard smears. So in that respect, I mean, how you see this moment in terms of the the jingoism and the space for debate. And then in terms of the danger to the world, the the ever-increasing risk of confrontation between the world's top nuclear powers. Biden now continuing to escalate by sending these long-range rockets, albeit with a promise from Ukraine that they won't hit Russia. So I mean, in terms of the dangers of this moment and the jingoism, how do you situate it historically? Well, with regard to the dangers, one of the points that I find striking, which is also perverse, um, is the fact that a good deal of the opposition is coming from the right wing. Uh, that is to say, you might have seen the piece in the New York Times by Christopher Caldwell, uh, which raised searching and probing questions about this uh, Ukrainian misadventure. You might have noticed that on all these various votes uh, taken in the House in particular, that there has been virtual unanimity with regard to the Democratic caucus, including uh, such stalwarts, that's the squad, uh, including such stalwarts as Congresswoman Barbara Lee of the Congressional Black Caucus, who, if I'm not mistaken, accompanied uh, Nancy Pelosi on her visit uh, to Ukraine uh, some days ago. And whatever opposition has emerged oftentimes has come from Republicans, which does not bode well going into these elections where it will be difficult for the Democrats to run on a platform of prosperity, given eight and a half percent inflation. The news from downtown Los Angeles is that a gallon of unleaded gasoline is now at $8 per gallon heading northward. Some analysts suggest that it won't be long before a loaf of bread costs $10. Speaking of food riots in Iraq, what about food riots in the United States of America? And what this suggests is that this will put wind in the sails, these, this, this Ukraine crisis of the right wing. They don't need more wind in their sails. And it also, I'm afraid to say, uh, may reveal a fissure within the U.S. ruling elite in general. Uh, what I mean is that uh, one way, there are many ways to look at Trump foreign policy, but one way to look at it, and it's reflected, by the way, in the uh, book by hawkish Washington Post columnist uh, Josh Rogan, uh, Chaos Under Heaven, where he suggests that uh, Mr. Trump was trying to do uh, what's called a reverse Kissinger. That is to say, he was trying to improve relations with Moscow so as to better confront China. And here you have the Democrats who are taking on all comers like a drunk in a bar. They're going to take on Russia. They're going to take on China. 
And it's going to, it may take a psychologist or a therapist to puzzle out uh, why they feel they have to be to the right of the Republicans on this bedrock foreign policy issue. Perhaps uh, they are not confident with regard to their defense of settler colonialism. And so therefore they have to bend over backwards to show their muscle. And that leads them to these uh, unsustainable foreign policy positions, uh, which then leads me, I'm afraid to say, to an analysis of the left. My, my estimation is that with regard to what I call the pro-war left, I see, speaking simplistically, two wings. One wing was burned during the Red Scare for supposedly being too close to Moscow. They're not going to make that mistake again. <laughs> so they're going to bend over backwards to show that uh, they're anti-Moscow. And then another wing, of course, was hostile to Moscow then. It's hostile to Moscow now. So there's been no change. So whatever the concoction, uh, this is a very perilous moment. Uh, many analysts have compared it to the so-called Caribbean crisis, the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, uh, when this small planet came to the brink of nuclear destruction. In some ways, this moment it's even more dangerous because you could have made an argument in 1962 that in terms of the balance of forces, despite the fact that the whole world could have been blown up, that the United States, at least marginally, if not more so, was stronger than Moscow. It's going to be very difficult for the United States to stand up simultaneously to Russia, to China, to Iran, to North Korea. Uh, this is madness, and it can only end in tears. It is absolutely terrifying, and it is depressing to witness the surrender of the squad, though not surprising, and Bernie Sanders as well. I go around Washington, D.C. and see homes with fluttering Ukraine flags that either used to have Black Lives Matter flags on their lawns or over these homes or still have them. And I'm puzzled uh, because of the presence, as we've documented at the Gray Zone, of neo-Nazis formally integrated into the Ukrainian military and Ukraine as a magnet for U.S. neo-Nazis and white nationalists. Uh, we just published a piece by Alex Rubenstein at the Gray Zone. Uh, this is... Paul Gray, a known U.S. Nazi who's in Ukraine, former 101st Airborne member, uh, posing on you know one of his six Fox News appearances where they never even name him, uh, let alone note his white nationalist background. But the headline says it all. The Department of Homeland Security is concerned over Nazis returning to the U.S. after fighting in Ukraine. Uh, why isn't the media? And you know we've experienced blowback many times in the U.S. Um, you know, besides, you know, you know, feel free to 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 um, weigh in on the mentality of someone who would have a, a, a Black Lives Matter yard sign next to a Ukraine flag. Um, there seems to be some cognitive dissonance there. Um, but also do, uh, what you think uh, could happen after another kind of um, CIA 
semi-covert operation to arm a force that is honeycombed with neo-Nazis, including many with American citizens, how that could, and this circles back to the start of this discussion, how that could inflame violence within the United States. I mean, these are people coming back with advanced combat tactics, as well as connections to an international network of fascists and war criminals. Well, with regard to France and the Federal Republic of Germany, that's one of their major concerns. Uh, they recall what happened when you dump tons of weapons, for example, in Afghanistan, and it leads, as these young men begin to go, go home, it leads, of course, to unrest in Algeria. Recall what happened in Algeria a, a few decades ago. It leads to unrest throughout the region. But now these tons of weapons have been dropped not only into the heart of Europe, but into the front yard of one of the most corrupt nations on planet Earth. Indeed, uh, the reports I've received is that when these weapons are not being destroyed on the ground uh, by Russian assaults, they're basically uh, being marked up at times and then sold perhaps even sold to Russia, given the kind of corruption yep. that uh, you, you see in, in that part of Europe. And fortunately, the contradictions of between and amongst the so-called allies and NATO are erupting, which may spell the ultimate demise of this latest misadventure. I'm making reference, of course, to Turkey thus far uh, blocking the ascension of Finland and Sweden to NATO, the U.S.-dominated North Atlantic Treaty Organization, because the Turks feel that uh, Helsinki and Stockholm have been all too close to those they consider to be, the Turks consider to be terrorists, speaking of the Kurdish minority uh, in Turkey, not to mention uh, the, the fact that Turkey is also upset by the point that we witnessed, I'm sure you witnessed in Washington just a few days ago, when the Greek prime minister addressed Congress with uh, Vice President Harris and Speaker Pelosi sitting behind him as he took Turkey to task. Turkey's not very happy about that. Uh, they see that as a num another thumb in the eye by Washington. Uh, it may not be well known on this side of the Atlantic, but President Erdogan blames Washington not only for housing one of his chief political opponents, speaking of Fatullah Gulen, uh, who lives in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, and by the way, his Gulenist movement sponsors many charter schools, particularly in uh, Black American communities. That's right. But also the fact that the 2016 attempted coup, Mr. Erdogan feels, was a product of the Obama White House. So there are these fissures erupting in NATO. And of course, Turkey is not very happy about not being admitted into the European Union. That's driving it closer uh, to the Eurasian Economic Union headed by Moscow. It's driving it closer to BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which may, by the way, be admitting uh, Argentina as its latest uh, member, so it'll become uh, BRICSA. And so there are many contradictions 
and fissures that are erupting in the North Atlantic Alliance. And uh, it's not clear to me if the Biden administration has either the competence or the intelligence to deal with these fissures and contradictions. Certainly there's a, there's a competence issue. And also I think there's an arrogance issue. The U S has never faced down in such a direct way, a country like Russia before a G seven economy, uh, it's accustomed to kicking, kicking around small countries, weak countries like Iraq and Syria. This is serious business. And now we see a major escalation with Biden authorizing new offensive weapon systems to Ukraine. I think, we're in very dangerous territory, as you, as you said, Dr. Horn. But thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, thanks so much for your insights. This was a tour de force. Uh, those of you watching who aren't familiar with Dr. Horn's work, you need to familiarize yourself. Um, this it, it it really sets uh, everything we're experiencing in. in and a, you have dozens of books to choose from. Dozens of books and commentaries. And here's one. Here's your most recent book. Just a reminder, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, thanks so much for joining us at the Gray Zone. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Dr. Horn. So, uh, Aaron, I... I don't know if you have to uh, jump off soon, but I know you wanted to address the Sussman verdict. Yeah, let me talk about it quickly, and then I'm going to go join the Jimmy Dore show to talk about it more. But basically, so for people following that, by the way, that was great with Dr. Horn. I always learn so much from him, and thanks so much to, to him for taking the time to uh, to join us. It was great. Yeah. And, and uh, by the way, Max, great question about Nicole Hannah-Jones, because no one else is going to ask him that. And it's so true that she has not given him the credit that he deserves. And of course, he's a very humble guy. And I get that he supports, you know, the the core of her mission, which is bringing the history to light. And he wants to support that and not and not, you know, uh, take part in the disingenuous attacks on that project. But the fact is, I think the fact that he wasn't acknowledged speaks to what we were talking about, which is the centrality of hegemony to the U.S. narrative. And so even a series like 1619, which challenges so much of the mythology that goes into this culture, it still cannot bring itself to go to the part you talked about, which is empire and hegemony. And Dr. Horn is, you know, one of the sharpest critics and uh, and scholars when it comes to U.S. hegemony. So even a, um, a project, a revisionist project like 1619 is still not ready to go to where people like Dr. Horner willing to go. And I think that speaks to why he was not credited is because that comes with, that's a whole new ballgame. You know, it's a, it's a whole new territory of flack that you get for speaking the truth. Well, the, it, it, it's obvious because he is a socialist or a revolutionary communist and she cannot be associated with such a figure. Uh, it seems like she wants to make a career for herself. And even if as she's upset the right, she's been rewarded handsomely uh, with this, uh, what I think she got some position canceled and got a um, endowed faculty position, meaning some anonymous millionaires or billionaires ponied up for her to have a position here in DC at Howard University, along with Tanahasi Coates, who is a writer who 
basically wrote a hagiography for Barack Obama uh, called For Eight Years We Were in Power. I don't know who he's referring to unless he is what Wall Street, the arms industry, Monsanto. <laughs> um, but, you know, he he got he got his reward, too. So, you know, I find it just suspect that someone can undercut some of the core underpinnings of U.S. exceptionalism in the New York Times, and they have to make certain compromises with the system and the establishment to do so. And one of those is to not acknowledge the man who really laid the foundation for that narrative, and that was Gerald Horn. Yes, yes. And this is our perspective, not his. And he was very gracious yeah. to her and I think very supportive of her series. But yeah, but that was great. And so we're very grateful to him for joining us. So this news about and Michael Sussman. probably the only time you'll ever hear Beto O'Rourke praised on the gray zone. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, 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 but uh, Michael, Michael Sussman, who has the perfect last name, Sussman, he Sussman. is a Clinton lawyer who was just on trial in Washington, D.C., in a city that voted 90%, a rate of over 90% for Hillary Clinton, and it was a jury trial. Uh, so this is a dangerous dangerous territory for people who have short attention spans because to understand Russiagate, you have to go so deep down the rabbit hole. And yeah. there's this concept, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Bleeker and Gortman. No. It's this phrase in Washington that came out during the impeachment, uh, the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, when so many random and completely boring and grim characters like Vindman and all these other George Kent just came out of nowhere for this 24-7 TV drama. No one could keep track of it. So people just started to refer to all the impeachment witnesses and all the cast of characters, including Zelensky, who no one cared about back then, as Bleeker and Gortman. <laughs> just like complete randos. So Sussman to me is another Bleeker and Gortman character, but he really is an important figure in understanding this, the gigantic hoax of Russiagate. However, he was acquitted. What was he accused he was, of? Who is Michael Sussman and why do you think he was acquitted? Just yeah, we'll look in there. And the story of this case speaks to the, to the dynamic you're talking about where it does require a strong attention span because there's so many details and it's complicated, but basically Michael Sussman is a Clinton campaign lawyer, worked for the Clinton campaign, was instrumental in the whole Russiagate operation. His law firm hired and worked with Fusion GPS, which put out the Steele dossier, which was seeded into the media and the FBI to drum up these false allegations of a Trump-Russia conspiracy. So Sussman was indicted uh, and accused of lying to the FBI as he was trying to push to them one aspect of the various Trump-Russia conspiracy theories, which is that a Trump organization server was secretly communicating with a Russian bank. And Michael Sussman gave the FBI back in the fall of 2016 some data that purported to prove this alleged Russian Trump secret channel. And the indictment against him is not that he was giving the FBI false information, even though it looks very much like he was giving the FBI the product of a scam, a deliberate attempt to manufacture a link between Trump and Russia. But he was accused of lying to the FBI in telling them that he was not doing so on behalf of any client, that even though he was working for the Clinton campaign, he told them, I'm just here as a concerned citizen. So he got indebted for lying to the FBI. And there's documentary proof of him lying because there's a text message where he says to 
the FBI official, Jim Baker, who he presented this to, that I'm not doing this on behalf of any client. And that's allegedly what he also said when they met in person. But he wasn't charged with what he said in the text message. He was charged with what he said during the meeting, which, of course, is based on people's memory. But the point is, it was a kind of a ridiculous case to begin with, because the idea that the FBI was duped here by the Clinton campaign and not acting as their willing conspirator uh, is it just doesn't pass the smell test. John Durham, the special prosecutor, wanted people to believe that Michael Sussman lying to the FBI and saying that I'm not here on behalf of any client, that that has some, somehow inhibited the FBI's investigation. When really, in reality, uh, Michael Sussman saying I'm not here on behalf of my client, I'm just here as a concerned citizen, that was a cover story for everybody to use, including the FBI. Because the FBI, as is now obvious, was in on it, was in on the Russiagate scam. That's why they used the SEAL dossier as their source to, to for surveillance warrants and investigative leads and concealed the fact that the Clinton campaign was paying for it from the FISA courts. Uh, that's why they relied on CrowdStrike, which is a private firm that accused Russia of hacking the DNC, the allegation that kicked off Russiagate. Uh, and, that, and Michael Sussman hi, was the one who hired CrowdStrike and controlled the information that it gave the FBI. So that's the real scandal here. Not that Michael Sussman lied to the FBI, but the FBI worked in concert with Michael Sussman and then lied to the public and even the FISA court about just how much the FBI was relying on Michael Sussman's work because it's scandalous that the FBI, while investigating Trump for alleged ties to Russia, is basing pretty much the 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 core of it of its investigation on allegations that are being drummed up by Trump's political opponents in the Clinton campaign. That's the scandal here. So Durham trying to prosecute this was maybe he felt this was the only way that he could do it is to get a charge. And this did get some stuff into the public record and that's good. But the premise of the charge is tough to believe. And I don't think that's why the jury rejected it. I think the jury rejected it probably because they're partisan Democrats and this is a DC jury pool. But that is the point here that the real scandal here is not whatever Michael Sussman said. It's what the FBI did in working in partnership with Michael Sussman and the Clinton campaign. Right. And, and, and so the real scandal is it exposes how the national security state was waging a campaign of sabotage against the elected president by spreading misinformation in concert with his opponent. Yes. And now we know one of the key reasons why is be, and it speaks to what we're speaking about with Dr. Horn a little bit. There's a huge amount of ingrained Russophobia inside the establishment who want to sabotage any possibility of diplomacy with Russia uh, because Russia is a deterrent to U.S. hegemony, as we're seeing now in Ukraine. And so one of the goals of Russiagate was to sabotage the prospect of constructive diplomacy, because recall that Trump on the campaign trail was talking about getting along with Russia. And that was like poison to the ears of the powerful officials inside the national security state. So this wasn't just about a political operation, like Clinton trying to, you know, spread dirt about her opponent. It was also, you know, geopolitical. And we're seeing the consequences in the play out now where Trump, whatever his own intentions were, was boxed into going along with the national security state and all the neocons inside his administration, who he appointed into escalating the proxy war inside Ukraine, where he sent weapons that Obama wouldn't even send. 
He tore up vital nuclear uh, treaties with Russia. And all this played a huge role in fueling the crisis that we're in today. So this is why, you know, it's all the more important to focus on the story because it's not just about the Clinton campaign and Trump and, you know, the, a fight between the different factions of the ruling elite. It's also about the faction of the ruling elite that we don't really see, which is the national security state and how instrumental they are in controlling and sabotaging the government's policies. Well, Trump was no JFK, but I always go back to one of JFK's last speeches, a speech you don't, you're not taught about in elementary school at American university where while JFK was involved in a secret dialogue with Nikita Khrushchev, his Soviet counterpart and passing notes secretly to Khrushchev through his aide Pierre Salinger in a book that he would have gifted to him. Kennedy denounced the Cold War as a threat to all humanity, um, but particularly to Americans, and was assassinated some weeks later. Uh, and there were several assassination attempts that he was being warned about that were headed off by his se Secret Service detail. On, uh, you know, conspiracies proliferate for very legitimate reasons. And now we see the president Joe Biden, someone who, uh, and Gerald Horn called him a bad admiral, but I mean, I can't even, uh, I don't think he would even be on deck if he was on a ship. He'd be like under deck. I mean, the, he's, he's, he's clearly not um, competent enough to be president and I, every, and, and no one expects him to run again. And no one knows who would even replace him on the democratic side. So it really raises the question of who's in charge. And you have the Trump era, during the Trump era, you had a president who was a rogue, who was willing to t take on what he called the deep state and the blob. And he said he was going to drain the swamp. And ultimately, they he were said not- he, was, he, said he, was, he said he was willing to take on the deep state. I don't think- He, he said he was willing to. And, and, and as I was going to say, ultimately, his adversaries within the national security state and the permanent bureaucracy were not afraid of what Donald Trump would do because- he had been rendered practically impotent by the end. They were afraid of what he would say. And this is ultimately why he had to be taken out, removed from Twitter, and why action has been and will be taken to prevent him from running again. It's just simply what he says is just too damaging. It's why Stefan Halper, a FBI and CIA covert operative, was inserted into the Trump campaign. Uh, your interview with George Papadopoulos is extremely illustrative of a national security state plot against an elected leader. Uh, it's why Trump Tower was in fact wiretapped and Donald Trump was called a crazy conspiracy theorist for saying this. And I was outraged by that, even though I thought Trump was an absolute buffoon uh, and, and not qualified, but it should have been outrageous to everyone just as these revelations should outrage everyone. Because if you do get to elect someone who actually can change course on this disastrous, disastrous imperial suicidal path that we're on, they will be sabotaged by the same forces. As we saw when Bernie Sanders in 2020, after paying um, lip service to Russiagate for you know the entirety of Trump's administration, instead of calling it out for the scam that it was, he was repaid for his services by getting Russiagated himself. And he was sabotaged by leaks claiming that he was 
now uh, being supported secretly by Vladimir Putin, as we talked about last week. And Bernie's yeah. continued to yeah. uh, uh, to respond to the Russia gating of him by continuing to kiss its feet, as is now evidenced by him voting to fund the Ukraine proxy war to the tune of $40 billion, more than half of that going right to the U.S. weapons industry. And, and as we've seen in the Durham investigation, what the FBI would do was that they would leak the press that they're investigating some figure or some intrigue in order to smear that person in the media. And the investigation, of course, would ultimately be fruitless, lead nowhere, never lead to an indictment. But that was all the FBI needed to do to taint, to taint their targets uh, working with their stenographers. Uh, one of them I would think I, I can, that comes to mind is Michael Isikoff. Uh, the FBI said, we're investigating Sputnik News in Washington. So Isikoff wrote a, a big piece, uh, you know, bombshell piece on Sputnik radio being investigated in Washington, D.C. The investigation went nowhere. No one was prosecuted. Nothing happened. Uh, but it helped kind of set, ring, you know, raise the tension level about U.S.-Russian relations in Washington. So here we are in a proxy war that could turn into a hot war. And this really sets the backdrop. Um, and so it is important, I think, to talk about these and to get beyond the Bleeker and Gortman uh, rabbit hole details and put this in a wider perspective. And with that, I have to jump off. All right. Well, Aaron, uh, thanks again. And uh, yeah, we've been going up against a a Jimmy Dore live stream. So I the think juggernaut, we did, I know. <laughs> the juggernaut. I think we did pretty well. well we thanks got, to everyone who joined us and not Jimmy. Yeah, we got a few Jimmy Dore refugees joining us. <laughs> About 800 right now. Well, um, I'm, so we'll sell, I'm, I'm trying on. to sell you out, Max, but I'm going to join. I'm going to go join Jimmy right now. All right. Get on the big ship. <laughs> get off for All, a right, bye, All right. Peace, everybody. We're Peace. out.